Have you ever gotten really sick? Like, rushed to the emergency room sick? What if you got there, and instead of tending to you, the ER staff suddenly became sick themselves? What if, as staff members are being rolled away on gurneys, the ones who are left started to think you were the culprit? Can a person become so toxic they can actually poison those around them? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is becoming increasingly terrified of the world the more I do this podcast. This week, a dying woman gets admitted to the hospital, and the staff, desperately trying to keep her alive, start to become violently sick, one by one. Gloria Ramirez, a.k.a. The Toxic Woman. On February 19, 1994, 31-year-old Gloria Ramirez was rushed to General Hospital in Riverside, California. Gloria had late-stage cervical cancer, but her fiancé called an ambulance because she was having severe heart palpitations. The two paramedics who tended to Gloria in the ambulance administered an IV line. Whether that was to draw blood or give her some kind of medicine is unknown. In the emergency room, Gloria was confused and unable to answer questions. Her heart was beating way too fast and her breathing was erratic. The ER staff started pumping her full of drugs to normalize her heart. They also gave her three different drugs to sedate her. I have to assume that her fiancé was in the ER with her because I can't imagine why someone would send their loved one to the hospital in an ambulance and not go with them. But beyond calling the ambulance, he's not mentioned in any of the articles about this incident. When Gloria's heartbeat and breathing didn't respond to the drugs, Maureen Welch, a respiratory therapist, administered oxygen. The oxygen also failed to help the situation, so the ER staff decided to defibrillate Gloria's heart with paddles. When they got Gloria's shirt off to attach the paddles, one nurse noticed a fruity, garlicky smell coming from Gloria's mouth. Then, as Dr. Julia Gorchinsky went to attach the paddles, she noticed an oily sheen on Gloria's skin. So, it's at this point that registered nurse Susan Kane took a blood sample. As she's drawing Gloria's blood, Nurse Kane notices a weird smell to the blood. It was not the smell she would have expected from someone undergoing chemotherapy. Instead, she said it smelled like ammonia. She handed the syringe to Maureen Welch, the respiratory therapist, and leaned in close to Gloria's body and the site from where the blood was being drawn to try to figure out what or where the smell was coming from. When she stood back up, Kane started to sway. Dr. Umberto Ochoa caught her just before she fell to the ground. She said her face was burning. Nurse Kane was put on a gurney and rolled out of the room. As Dr. Ochoa handled Gloria's blood sample, he noticed tiny straw-colored crystals in her blood. That's very not normal. But before he could really start to wonder about what the hell was floating around in Gloria's blood, Dr. Gorchinsky reported feeling queasy and lightheaded and stepped out of the trauma room to sit down at the nurse's station. She apparently looked bad enough that one of her co-workers asked her if she was okay. Without answering, Gorchinsky slid out of the chair onto the floor. 
When she woke up, she couldn't control her limbs. She wasn't paralyzed, she just couldn't get her legs and arms to do what she wanted them to do. Dr. Gorchinsky was admitted to the hospital as a patient, which would begin a medical saga for her. Just as Gorchinsky was being wheeled out on a gurney, back in the trauma room, Maureen Welch was the third member of the ER team to pass out. One by one, other staff members suddenly fell ill, fainting, or getting nauseous and dizzy. Only 15 minutes after being admitted to the hospital, Gloria Ramirez was the only patient left inside the ER department. Dr. Ochoa had decided the entire emergency room needed to evacuate to the parking lot. No one knew what was going on except that for some reason, people who came near Gloria were inexplicably getting sick and fainting. The few staff left inside to tend to Gloria did everything they could to prevent her precipitous slide toward death. Even after more electric shocks to her heart and more drugs, at 8.50 p.m., just 35 minutes after arriving in the ER, Gloria Ramirez died. But not before somehow apparently getting nearly two dozen ER staff members really sick, six of whom ended up needing to be hospitalized themselves. So what was it? Was Gloria Ramirez leaking toxins? Or was there something else going on? So, now that you know the basics, I want to dig into a few things that I don't understand. First of all, when she got to the hospital, Gloria's heart was beating at a rate of more than 100 beats per minute. Why did they need to defibrillate her? That seems like jump-starting a car that's already running hot, you know? Also, it just seems to me that pumping someone full of sedatives and then zapping their heart with electricity is a weird sequence of events. I'm sure they knew what they were doing. It's just, as a layperson sitting here at my desk, it seems weird. Also, I can only hope the IV the paramedics administered in the ambulance was to take blood, because by the time Nurse Kane went to get a blood sample, Gloria was so hopped up on medical-grade goofballs that her blood probably would have gotten anyone within 15 feet of it high. Wouldn't they want to check someone's blood before dumping a whole bunch of shit into it? Like, maybe make sure she didn't already take a bottle full of Valium before giving her more Valium? Next, let me just ask why the decision was to move the entire ER to the parking lot. If Dr. Ochoa thought Gloria was the problem, why not just move Gloria outside? Wouldn't that have been easier than moving the entire ER department? It's possible Ochoa thought the problem was coming from the ER itself, like the ventilation system or whatever, but then why didn't Gloria get evacuated as well? And look, I'm sure Dr. Ochoa made whatever decisions he thought were best in the moment. I can't think straight under that kind of pressure, which is why Dr. Ochoa is an ER doctor and I'm a podcaster. Could you imagine getting rushed to the ER for like, I don't know, hemorrhaging blood or something, and the ambulance gets to the parking lot out front and is like, well, here we are. 
literally right here. And there's just rows of gurneys with moaning people. And some doctor's like, whose Nissan Ultima is this? I'm hanging an IV bag from the roof rack. So the official cause of Gloria Ramirez's death was kidney failure due to cervical cancer or possibly heart failure, I'm telling you, the reporting on this case is all over the place. Whatever it was that ultimately killed her, everyone was still trying to figure out what it could have possibly been about Gloria that was making medical staff around her pass out. One of the nurses tasked with moving Gloria's body to an isolation anteroom started throwing up and said she felt a burning sensation on her skin. At this point, with the ER staff dropping like flies from some invisible assailant, the first people brought in after Gloria's death was a hazmat team. Imagine that. Your loved one dies and the first people called in is the fucking hazmat team? Basically, they were looking for any sign of noxious chemicals in the air inside the ER, whether they had come from Gloria herself or through a ventilation system. After an external culprit was ruled out, the coroner had a special chamber built for Gloria's autopsy to see if whatever it was had actually come from Gloria. And to find out how she died. Extreme precautions had been taken with the handling of Gloria's body after her death. And when I say extreme precautions were taken, I mean that Gloria's body had been stored inside two airtight bags, inside an airtight coffin, inside the airtight refrigerated chamber. Before anyone examined the body, two industrial hygienists in airtight suits opened the coffin and took air samples. This whole situation was so bizarre that 2020 covered it only two weeks after Gloria's death. The footage of the hospital parking lot from the night the ER was evacuated and then of the autopsy preparation six days later looks like something out of some kind of post-apocalyptic alien invasion movie. The four people attending the autopsy got dressed in the parking lot wearing hazmat suits with rubber gloves and their own oxygen supply and had to be hosed down in their underwear in the parking lot afterward. Also, Barbara Walters' outfit is... A choice. The 90s were weird. Anyway. When the California coroner's office could not determine what was making Gloria so poisonous, they called in doctors Anna Maria Osario and Kristen Waller from the California Department of Health and Human Services, as well as people from the Forensic Science Center at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, who I'll refer to as the Livermore Scientists. I really wish there was some information about what Gloria's family was going through during all of this. It's bad enough to lose someone to cancer, but then to have their body treated like some kind of biohazard? Like, I'm sure they just wanted her body so they could have a funeral, but instead they're bringing in official state scientists in spacesuits to solve some insane medical mystery? Anyway... While the team from the Livermore scientists were doing their sciencey stuff with samples and biopsies, doctors Osario and Waller set about interviewing staff, having them fill out questionnaires and looking at the autopsy results, the hazmat analysis, and blood test results from the staff who had taken ill after treating Gloria. 
They found that the staff that came down with shortness of breath, loss of consciousness, and muscle spasms not only came within two feet of Gloria, but were also those who handled her IV lines. However, you might remember the paramedics who IV'd Gloria in the ambulance. Apparently, neither of them suffered any of the symptoms reported by the ER staff. But Osoria and Waller also found another interesting correlation. The affected staff, they determined, were mostly women, and most of them had skipped dinner. Therefore, according to the good doctors, the ER staff of General Hospital of Riverside, California, suffered from a case of mass hysteria. The staff, who had been rushed out of the trauma room because of fainting and not being able to control their muscles, they were just hungry ladies. You know how hysterical gals can get when they're hungry. And Dr. Gorchinsky, the doctor who ended up on a whole journey of medical issues beginning that night, Dr. Gorchinsky, who had been a champion surfer, by the way, I guess was so hysterical, she ended up bedridden and having three surgeries in eight months to address a bone disease in her knees. That's... That's pretty hysterical for an ER doctor to get. That's pretty hysterical for any ER staff to get over a woman having heart and breathing problems when they're used to dealing with blood and guts and death on a daily basis. To be fair, it's possible whatever was destroying Dr. Gorchinsky's bones was unrelated to whatever befell her and the other staff in the ER that night. But as far as anyone knew, she didn't have the problem before that night. So it's not surprising that Dr. Gorchinsky was like, excuse me, are you kidding me? When she was told the state's diagnosis was a wandering uterus. I'm sorry, I mean hysteria. And just in case you don't understand that reference, the ancient Greeks believed that the uterus just traveled around the body willy-nilly, causing mayhem wherever it went. Heart attacks, vomiting, death, etc. When doctors realized that organs were relatively fixed in position in the body and not just hopping about hither and thither, they still found a way to blame everything on the uterus. A common treatment for the many diseases blamed on the uterus, whether or not it was hiking around inside the body, was pregnancy. A woman was bored and listless? Knock her up. A woman cried a lot? Knock her up. A woman laughed a lot? Knock her up. A woman expressed an interest in sex? Knock her up for sure. The catch-all term hysteria replaced wandering wombs so that doctors could be like, obviously wombs don't wander, that's ridiculous. But women who yawn or cry or want to do things like learn are suffering from this made-up thing we'll call hysteria. Hysteria, by the way, is a word that comes from the word uterus. Proving that men have been at once fascinated and horrified by women's anatomy since at least the dawn of democracy. And, oddly, even though doctors Osaria and Waller claim to have interviewed all the staff in the ER that night, Dr. Gorchinsky claims they never interviewed her. And if that's true, who the hell did they interview? Also, doesn't 34 people seem like not enough people to staff an emergency room? If nearly two dozen staff members fell ill, that left, what, 10 or 11 staff in the entire ER? Look, I've watched the show ER. That set is crawling with people in white coats. 
34 people isn't even a full staff at the Cheesecake Factory on a Wednesday night, you know? When the finding of mass hysteria was called into question by everyone, Dr. Osorio admitted that there were three people they didn't interview and they never got the raw data from the autopsy. So they didn't even get the information from the body of the person that may or may not have caused whatever it was that happened in the ER that night. How do you draw any kind of conclusion from that? To that question, Dr. Osorio responded, As a researcher, I would like nothing better than to have a complete answer to this. It's just as frustrating to me. But if she didn't have a complete answer, why did she bandy about the theory that the problem was hungry women? Why not just say inconclusive? Well, it could be that two members of the ER staff, including Dr. Gorchinsky and Gloria Ramirez's family, were suing the hospital. And the doctors hired to come up with an official version of what happened that night were urged not to find the hospital at fault. That last part is conjecture, just to be clear. We don't know that anyone was urged to clear the hospital of blame, but I'm not the only one who thinks that might be what happened. Dr. Gorchinsky's lawyer intimated as much in his response to the conclusion that the staff came down with the case of the crazies. He said, The report may be based on politics or ignorance, but it's not based on science. And why, you might ask, would the hospital be so vested in not being at fault that they might go so far as to ask for false findings? This was not the first time Riverside General Hospital was accused of possible contamination from toxic gases or hazardous materials. A year before Gloria died in the ER, the California Occupational Safety and Health Administration notified Riverside General that the first floor emergency room was permeated with sewer gas from a drain. In 1991, two employees sought medical treatment after a possible leak of a hazardous gas from a sterilizer. And in 1992, the hospital was notified that an inspection found algae growing in a water reservoir algae growing in a water reservoir in a hospital. I can't with this. It's not hard to imagine that hospital officials were like, we cannot take another accusation, falsify your findings. So while the folks at Riverside General were busy doing jazz hands and saying, nothing to see here, folks, everyone else still wanted real answers. In an interview for the Washington Post about this case, the former chief medical examiner for New York City, Michael Barden, said, There's no way fumes can come out of a body and hurt people. That idea went out with the Dark Ages. This kind of thing gives death a bad name. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure death already had a bad name, friend. I don't know what it's like at your dinner parties. Yikes. But if Gloria herself wasn't leaking some kind of deadly toxin and the hazmat team that came in the night she died didn't find any gas leaks, what the hell was going on at Riverside General that night? 
Maggie Ramirez Garcia, Gloria's sister, said she believed her sister had begun chemotherapy or radiation treatment the week she died. The cancer was advanced, Maggie said, but was not supposed to be fatal. Gloria's family hired an independent pathologist who reached a preliminary conclusion that Gloria did not die of cancer. Her relatives angrily accused officials of bungling the investigation and concealing unsafe conditions at Riverside General Hospital where the incident occurred. It takes them 10 weeks to say she died of natural causes, asked Maggie. I don't believe anything the county officials or the coroner says. The coroner's office dragged their feet, getting samples to the Ramirez's pathologist, and by the time they did, he was unable to determine a cause of death because her heart was missing, her other organs were cross-contaminated with fecal matter, and her body was too badly decomposed. And does it strike anyone else as strange that the immediate cause of death given was kidney failure due to cervical cancer? Even heart failure, if that's what it actually was, seems like a weird diagnosis. If Gloria had only started chemo the week she died, it wouldn't have had time to damage her organs like it sometimes does. And I don't think cancer causes organ failure unless it's spread to those organs, which there's no mention of in Gloria's case. And I'm not alone. A noted forensic pathologist not involved with the case commented also that the hospital's version of what happened that night was... Very interesting and very misguided. Ultimately, the Ramirez family had to bury Gloria without knowing what actually killed her, and while dealing with a hospital administration who they claimed portrayed Gloria as a toxic monster in order to shift blame away from themselves. Gloria's sister Maggie said, I honestly believe my sister may have lived if she hadn't gone into the emergency room that night. I don't know what the county is afraid of, but we want answers. It makes sense for Gloria's family to think something stinks with this whole situation, given the bizarre, cagey answers from the state, and that Stephanie Albright, a top-level investigator in the county coroner's office who was in charge of the Ramirez case, killed herself a month into the probe. Look, who knows if her suicide had anything to do with feeling pressure to cover for the hospital or not, but when a top person in an investigation kills themselves during the investigation, it's going to make people's ears perk up. Also, the syringe used to draw Gloria's blood... The syringe that either smelled like ammonia or was drawing something that smelled like ammonia from Gloria? That syringe? Want to know what happened to that extremely important piece of evidence? Can you guess? Someone threw it out! Someone threw it out. (sighs) The coroner's office insisted after the initial autopsy that Gloria died of natural causes— But then, at a press conference in April of 1994, two months after Gloria died, Deputy Coroner Dan Capito said that the initial autopsy found Ramirez died from other than natural causes. Capito could not explain the conflicting statements. He also could not explain the odor described by the workers, but said no external toxic substance was found in Ramirez. And when reporters asked him if the investigation would continue, he said... It's finished. 
It's finished? Bro, you literally said Gloria died of natural causes or unnatural causes, but you don't know, and there was no external toxic substance found, and you threw out the syringe, and there were mysterious crystals in her blood, and still no one knows why nearly two dozen people got sick. It's finished? Wow. While the coroner's office was busy saying, we don't know, case closed, the Livermore scientists released a statement in November of 94 with some findings. This is super sciencey and hard to understand, so I'm going to break it down for myself. It's not that I don't trust you to understand what the hell they're saying, it's that I don't. So, here goes. The Livermore scientists claim to have found DMSO in Gloria's blood, which might help to explain the oily sheen on her skin. DMSO was a chemical used to relieve pain and anxiety in the 60s and 70s that turned out to wreak havoc on the eyes, which might make you take a second look at that CBD you've been putting in and all over your body. So, while people stopped using DMSO for pain, officially, it was still used as a grease cutter, readily available in any hardware store. And if that freaks you out, definitely don't Google what Listerine was initially marketed for. In the 80s, the FDA told doctors, tell your patients not to ingest this shit. The idea is that even though as a grease cutter it's still 99% pure, it won't cause side effects if it's not ingested, I guess. At this point, it seemed like everyone was like, well, we told people not to ingest it, so I'm sure they won't. Problem solved. The grease cutter lobby must be really powerful. But, of course, people still ingested it because our healthcare system is lacking. And when you're in pain from late-stage cancer, you will try just about anything to not be in pain anymore. So the Livermore scientists came up with this scenario. Gloria was dosing herself with DMSO to alleviate the immense pain from her cancer. Due to a urinary blockage, it built up in her system. And then, through the series of medical interventions taken in the ER, and something that would constitute the world's most boring lecture in Chemistry 101, the DMSO not only converted into a higher concentration of a more dangerous version of itself, but also formed the crystals found in Gloria's blood. And then, by some, quote, unknown mechanism, which may or may not have been the defibrillation, the now more dangerous version of DMSO became an even more dangerous version of DMSO. And the vapors from that version is what felled the medical staff. This new version of DMSO would have been so volatile, it would have dissipated, leaving no trace behind. DMSO, it's basically the gremlins of the chemical world. Whatever you do, don't feed it after midnight. So, the Livermore scientists take this scenario to the Riverside coroner's office to be like, this is a possible scenario, but we're not sure at all. And the coroner's office runs with it and is like, look, everyone, see? We told you it was Gloria's fault. To which the Livermore scientists were like, whoa, 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 that's not what we said. But it was too late. And even though Gloria's family vehemently denied this version of how she died, and no one found anything containing DMSO in Gloria's house, that version remains the official one. And Riverside doesn't want any backtalk. 
My favorite theory, though, is the one where some of the staff at Riverside General Hospital were running a meth smuggling operation, using the hospital to basically launder meth the way a cheap titty bar launders money. Everyone knows that you don't want to just stroll into Home Depot and buy all the ingredients for making meth, unless you want the authorities alerted immediately. No, you go to your son's high school for the beakers and Bunsen burners, the hardware store for the bleach or whatever. I don't know. I have literally never cooked meth. A different hardware store for the methylthiolide sulfate, which is something I just made up, and CVS for Robitussin and a box of tampons for your wife. So, meth producers sometimes get super creative with the supply chain, and if you happen to know someone who works in the ER, you might be like, hey, can you get this meth chemical for me and put it in some saline bags? According to a forensic chemist, the fumes inhaled by ER staff and the symptoms they suffered are classic indicators of meth chemicals and meth production. In this scenario, someone grabbed a bag of IV medicine, thinking it was Valium or lidocaine or whatever, but it was actually meth chemicals. The chemical they think they might have injected Gloria with by mistake, by the way, smells just like ammonia. Considering Riverside was a huge center of meth production in the 80s and 90s, this scenario isn't like completely out of left field. But why wouldn't anyone from Riverside General do anything to dispel this rumor? Like, there didn't seem to be an investigation into whether or not there were other bags of meth chemicals just laying around the hospital. Shouldn't the rest of the IV bags have been checked? Was anyone worried that other patients were in danger of being injected with meth ingredients? Also, you've heard me ask this before, but after nearly 30 years, don't you think someone might have come forward, at least anonymously, to be like, yes, we ran a meth ring through the hospital. Sorry about that. If that is what happened, it makes me feel even worse about what Gloria's final moments were like. To be accidentally administered chemicals used in making meth... If she did actually die of heart failure, that would seem like a likely culprit. But to have no control over what's going into your body? Was she aware of the other people around her fainting and being wheeled out one by one? She must have been terrified. And then to die and be treated like a biohazard? I'm inclined to agree with Gloria's sister Maggie, who thought that Gloria wouldn't have died if she hadn't gone to Riverside General that night. But to this day, no one really knows what killed Gloria Ramirez or got the people treating her sick. And because of the way the investigation was handled, we probably never will. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, Crop Circles. We've all seen stories about them on the news, but what are they? Communications from alien life forms? Messages from humans of the future? Or are they elaborate hoaxes pulled off in the dead of night? Probably that, right? But maybe not. And maybe we have the proof that something really strange and really real is making these beautiful formations. 
We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>